So last, last week we spoke about the Jewish views on death in a more general sense of what happens you know, after death in, the, in terms of the body and connection to the soul. And now we're going to more in the practical direction about uh, euthanasia and end-of-life care. Um, the focus is, is going to be on euthanasia. Okay. Um, but obviously end-of-life care encompasses a lot more than that. And... Um, we just are limited in, in time and scope of what we can discuss. Um, so I'm going to get two sheets in very different kinds of sources. The first one is um, Jewish sources from the Talmud and um, commentaries on the Talmud and the Shulchan Aruch, uh, the standard code of Jewish law, the main one. The other one is from a book. Um, that was written a few years ago about euthanasia, but it doesn't um, look at euthanasia as a contemporary ethical problem that exists in a in isolation. It looks at it from a historical perspective. Um, before we look, at, I'm going to actually start with that. But before we look at that, um, we should just again mention some of the context of what's going on here in the modern times of dying. So again, the number of people who die in hospitals today is significantly different than it was um, 60, 70 years ago. So we're in 1940, you had about half of people uh, would live to, on average, half of people would be average between men and women would live uh, to 65 and over, and they live another 15 years or so, and um, today that's much higher. So people are, you're looking more at around 80% on average, if you take them all together. Um, and then uh, also before death generally happened much more quickly from the time that a person got sick to the time a person died, and now you're, you'll be, people tend to deal with ailments that will eventually cause their death for possibly years. Um, so that's very different. So you have a sort of, in a sense, a drawn out, it's not really dying anymore. Once you get sick, it's not dying. You're not dying anymore. You're not considered dying for good reason. Um, however, so when we look at the uh, Shulchan Aruch, when we look at the code where it talks about, um, about dying, it's entitled The Laws of Visiting the Sick. Because if you imagine uh, you know, 300 years ago, visiting the sick generally meant visiting someone who was going to die. Uh, so that's wh- why it's under that title. And of course, since you're, you're um, I should probably introduce myself. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm just getting I, into know, that. I know your name. Okay. <laughs> and you are? Malki Sinensky. Okay. Um, so, um, Right. So again, so again, under the title, under the under the heading, uh, the laws of the sick, we find the laws of dying. When like you that. talk about euthanasia, um, are you talking about um, suicide? Um, is it, is it is there a different? Because when I took the course on ethics at Yeshiva University, that yeah, that was like. You don't have to hook it up, but you can't pull it. You can't pull the plug. Uh-huh. So, so the the idea of even doing anything to right. speed up death right. in that course. Right. I mean, the, they like to distinguish between suicide and euthanasia, even if it's a, even when euthanasia means suicide. 
right? So they yeah, I'm trying to see see what the difference but is. Because euthanasia is a very general category that just means having a good death. So oh, not not right. speeding it up or it could mean many things. Anything under the category, it just means youth. You the EU prefix means good and oh, okay. Thanos means death. So from there, those words together, you get okay. the term euthanasia, which means I did not think having a good death. Way. So a, a, so okay. so euthanasia okay. has come now to mean generally Assistance. two things: either active yes, euthanasia, active. where you actively uh, speed up death, right. or even um, essentially a, at one extreme you have physician-assisted suicide or um, is, is the most, is the extreme at which there are some places in the U.S. where it's legal. Um, right. Right. And then, but those are, and then, and, other, and then and there's a few Scandinavian countries which go beyond that which right. allow a physician, oh, you yeah. know, not assisted suicide, but a physician-facilitated suicide so that it's actually done by a third party. Um, so in America, that's not really on the table. The question is whether well, there, but it's being brought up in in now in lots of different states and lots of different places. They're yeah. starting to talk about it more and more. Absolutely, yeah. So, but that's but we're still mostly talking about whether like a physician could provide um, drugs that a person could take, okay. not whether the physician could administer or any third party. That's basically illegal across the country. Because someone else doing that act would be would is still considered murder. The question is whether it's illegal to facilitate a person right. accelerating their own death. Um, so that's one thing. So people will die much long, uh, much later in 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 time, have longer lives. Dying uh, illness spread out over a longer course generally, and dying itself takes longer because of all these treatments that right. prolong. Life and or, or prolonged dying, depending on how you look at it. Um, and so, as a result of that, when we talk about euthanasia today, generally, what people are there's something that they're afraid of. It's not that what we're going to look at this uh, text for a second. You'll see that when people before had an idea of euthanasia, there's something that they were looking forward to in their death that was the kind of death that they wanted and here mostly in the public uh, imagination it's what the kind of death that they don't want they don't want to die in a hospital connected to all these things in pain, in pain right. etc etc so that's 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 a shift um, that's taking place and again and then the other important shift is we live in a in a secularized age even though america is a fairly religious country overall um the way we talk about these things is like in public is is a secularized discourse. We're not talking about religious doctrine and God in public discourse as much. So even though in at an individual level, at a communal level, it might be a lot of, that talks about talk about God and religious doctrine, and the public discourse is a little bit separate. It's, it's trying that's huge, that's a huge issue in, in in America at least right now. Yeah, that that whole secular versus religion in many, many different aspects of what's going on because there's a lot of, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that people would disagree with secularly right. if you're a religious person. So it's going to be kind of a bigger issue, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always been a tension, and especially in this country, about what you, what, what's valid uh, to bring into public uh, discussions. 
uh, and ethical ones especially. I mean, on the one hand, a lot of our moral teachings, our basis is in religion. On the other hand, you know, one of the trends is trying to distance, you know, uh, religion from morality and to have a public morality that is religion free, not just not necessarily because people think religion is bad, but because we don't agree. <laughs> the air conditioner's probably in there. Yeah. I hope whoever's listening is here. I'll put this closer. <laughs> not because people regard religion as bad, although there are people who really dislike religion in the public sphere, but because you can say, what's our common denominator? It's not necessarily our religion, so we have to kind of look at, talk about ethics in a way that's divorced from it. Uh, okay, so. Um. But when something, when something is illegal, and, 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 you know, and it, it's not the religious sense, it's not forcing anybody to do, to do it. I mean, if you have, if you say that abortion is illegal, it doesn't mean There's a two basic way. There's two very different ways of looking at law. One is, you know, one is the um, libertarian view of law, and one is the, you could say, the um, moral cultural way of looking at law. The libertarian view says that law is really just to protect people from hurting each other. So we just need a bare minimum of laws that keep everyone from, you know, protect their rights from other people. Um, and law, the function of the purpose of law is not to have, encourage broader forms of morality in society. Um, so that's one view. In practice, that's not that's a, maybe a philosophical position in law, but that's not actually the way law has developed. Law has developed to encourage certain forms of moral behavior in society. So as law develops, it has been moving away from that because. We, um, we're moving from uh, a culture that's more homogeneous to one that's more diverse. The more diverse culture uh, the culture gets, right. the less agreement there is on what those morals should be that law should embody. Right. right? So then you're sort of moving to that libertarian position about function of law. And yet, so you see that in the Supreme Court. You have two, si- 
and yet you don't. So the way, in the most recent case, the way the argument generally wasn't presented that let's stay out of re- let's stay out of people's private business. That was sort of the that was more of the discussion uh, in uh, what was it Lawrence in the Lawrence decision about um, almost the original case about homosexuality, which was a number of years ago, Lawrence v. Texas. So there they basically, you had the justices who said, this is pri- sexuality is private, and we'll leave it, we'll stay, the, the state should stay out of it. So that was an explicitly libertarian argument. On the other side, the justices who were arguing on the other side said, no, the state is allowed to put forward its moral beliefs in this situation that they, you know, if, if this, a given state thinks that homosexuality is morally uh, wrong, then they should be able to discourage well, it by criminalizing it. If you look at the most recent uh, Supreme Court decisions, the two sides weren't, didn't argue like that. The two sides were basically make, both making moral case. Yeah. One said right. that this is going against, you know, our in, you know tradition of moral of what's moral, and the other one was saying our evolving sense of what's moral says right. that this should be allowed. Okay. So just th- these things are always in tension. It's interesting to see how they play out. Um, in the case of euthanasia, you do see more of the latter. It's not that the government should stay out of people's lives so much as it's people should be able to have control over 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 having a, a good death. So anyway, so let's look at this first text. So um, I'll read it a little bit quickly so we can look at it. So the year was 1818. This um, is an introduction to a book called... Um, Called uh, by Shai Lavi, um, and the title is uh, "The Modern Art of Dying," and it was published in uh, 2005. And how do you spell you this name? L A V I. So here's a a Jewish, uh, a religious Jewish sociologist who's looking at. <laughs> American Christian culture. (laughs) So so the year was 1818 and the Howe family had just moved to Brandon, Vermont when the young mother fell ill. Hannah was 30 years old and suffered from consumption. Lying in her sickbed and knowing her days were numbered, she turned to her husband with a weighty question. Do you doubt of me being prepared to die? The question of how to die well occupied Hannah's thoughts long before she fell ill. Imagining her deathbed, she had often wished that she might die shouting and have an easy uh, passage over the Jordan of death. Um, meaning not shouting in pain, but shouting her belief in, proclaiming her belief in, in, in God. Um, as her day of departure approached, she continued to grow weaker in body and could not converse much. When she heard talk of the happy death of a certain person, she smilingly began waving her hand. Her husband then asked if she felt as though she could shout. Yes, she said, and still waving her hand, she cried, glory, glory, glory. Finally they came. Through the course of the day, she appeared as usual, and her mind was clear and serene. She was surrounded by friends and supported by her husband, who documented her last hour, quote, I took her by the hand and asked her if her confidence held out, if Jesus was, uh, was precious, and if she had a prospect of heaven. She pressed my hand and said yes, and fell asleep in the arms of Jesus without a struggle or a groan. 
So Lavi says early 19th century Americans named this triumphant passage to death, euthanasia. For them the word signified a pious death blessed by the grace of God. So this is the original use of the idea of euthanasia. It's a painless death in which you, you which, which reflects the virtue, the religious virtue of the person who's dying. Um, and now we see that he, he gives us another vignette. Um, um, at the young age, Dr. Arthur E. Herzler's daughter came down with terminal illness, most likely typhoid fever. In the saddest hour of my life, at the deathbed of my daughter, the 19th century physician recalled, on one side was the magnificent and always faithful Carrie the nurse, on the other was the incomparable Dr. Campbell, calmly applying measures of resuscitation, which he I knew were utterly futile. Um, so again, here we're, we're looking at a, a lay person, and now this is a doctor. Um, futile it was, the comfort of these professionals gave, in the indescribable me- gave him an indescribable measure of comfort. I know that my last conscious moments will picture that scene, nurse on one side of the bed, doctor on the other. Though scientifically futile, if my presence in a similar situation ever brought an equal amount of comfort to anyone, I'm sure I was more worthwhile than anything else I would ever have done. Our mission in life is to lessen human suffering as much as we can. So, here you have a doctor, and if you recall, again, the framework that we originally looked at about how death had changed, we're looking at the idea in, the, in, in more modern times is the idea of, the, of, a managed, uh, of a managed death. So it's surrounded by professionals who are there to accompany the person and make sure things are in order as they die. So that's already um, what's going on at this point. The ministers of the old days, wrote the doctor, had an idea that something notable should take place at the moment of dissolution and seemed to think I should provide pabulum for their discourses. But quite to the contrary, Dr. Hertzley believed that saints and sinners died alike and that at the time of death, whatever might have been the antecedents, there was no pain. So for mid-19th century physicians, again, this is roughly the same time as a little bit, not that much longer than the person yet, but looking at a physician's perspective, euthanasia meant a painless death accompanied by physician assistance. So you already see that changing. It, the original, you see the idea already of not, there not being pain, but here it's like the the um, um, the physician assists in that in that uh, being the case, both uh, psychologically and physically. The presence of a physician and nurse um, help help the patient uh, die. And the next one in June 1887, Dr. Edward Thwing received a telegram summoning him to a distant city to tend to a relative stricken with apoplexy and. Hemiplegia. Given the age of the patient, a 60-year-old widow, and the severity of the attack, death was assured within a day or two. She lingered, however, for five days, speechless and comatose. Her vigorous constitution succumbed slowly. Automatic movements such as pulling at clothes, lifting her head, her hand to her head, and other signs of restlessness continued until near the end. Uh, the attending physician had left the case in Dr. Thwing's hand 48 hours earlier, believing that the patient's life would soon be over. Recalling the case. Dr. Thwing noted, The reality of suffering I cannot admit, but the appearance of it in actions purely reflex is painful to me. As her only surviving kinsman, I took the responsibility of administering a mild anesthetic, moistening a handkerchief at intervals from a vial containing two drachms of chloroform and six drachms of sulfur ether, sulfuric ether. I held the handkerchief near the nostrils, but not too close as to facilitate the free admixture of the atmospheric air, and carefully studied the facial expression of the unconscious sufferer. After two to three minutes, the stertor ceased, spasmodic, spasmodic actions of the arm were arrested, respiration became easier, and there was a general repose. Euthanasia, the physician reported, was gained and apparently painful dissolution avoided. 
15 minutes after withdrawing the anesthetic, the final breath came without the slightest spasm of the glottis or respiratory muscles, without any physical struggle or sound, without the normal death rattle that, it, that people describe. So using an uh, anesthesia, obviously it hastened death, but that wasn't the idea. Yeah. The idea was to make it uh, come easier and reduce uh, the painful signs that he had he had um, seen. Um, at the autopsy of this patient, one of the five physicians present, um, you have to remember autopsy then was not just done uh, as early medical training, but it was a continuing thing since they were still figuring a lot of things out. Uh, one of the five physicians present described a case where at the request of the parents, he had administered ether to a child suffocating in membranous croup and produced euthanasia, not less to the relief of the parent than to that of the patient. So the parents are uh, distressed by the child's dying of croup, and um, so the, the, the euthanasia here has brought a, a good death to the child and to the parents witnessing it. Um, so it was only during the late 19th century that euthanasia gained its familiar meaning, the use of anesthetics to guarantee a swift and painless death. Soon after, attempts were made to legalize euthanasia, the first pro-euthanasia organization in the United States, the Euthanasia Society of America, was founded in 1938. And today, proposals to legalize euthanasia are still being debated throughout the country, and one form of medically hastened death, physician-assisted suicide, is already legally practiced in Oregon. Um, so again, now here later on, he, um, he, he mentions, like, what's the difference between suicide and, and euthanasia. Um, so if you skip down a paragraph, what makes the medical hastening of death a modern way of dying? It's not simply that the time of death, in addition to the manner of dying, is determined by human will. That would make it no different than suicide. Suicide is always an extraordinary act performed under extraordinary circumstances. Whereas the medical hastening of death is meant to be a routinized process, response to a problem we all may face, um, the onset of a fatal illness. Attempts to institutionalize the medical hastening of death and legalize the practice are thus a significant aspect of the modern idea of euthanasia. So that's the, the answer. It's not an... Ex- it's more semantic. The difference, what what is going on in, um, in 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 suicide is that it's just an extraordinary one-off thing. Uh, someone killing themselves. The idea of euthanasia is whether this is a routine part of of end-of-life care. Um, but if someone is sick, and you, you just, I, mean, I missed your other class, so I apologize. But if someone is sick, and you can said in this day and age, thank God we're able to, you know, in the olden days, if someone had anything that we have today, their life would be, days would be numbered. Now their life has been pro- prolonged. It can last another 5, 6, 7, 10, 15 years, depending on the treatment, right. depending on what kind of thing. Ultimately, the, that whatever it is will lead to, whatever their disease is, no matter how much you can prolong it, mm-hmm. it's going to lead to their death. Right. So based on this, it's only if they're literally in the last stages and they're in pain. This is what this is talking about, this particular. Not, you know, hastening, well, you know, I know I'm going to die in 15 years. Um, it's, it's really that's part of the debate that's going on. So if someone who has ALS uh, says, you know, if I let the disease, you know, 
progress to that point, I won't be able to right. make that decision. I won't be able to administer the thing. And legally, no one else can. Same thing with Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's, right. Right. When you could go for many years, but you know that, it, that you're going to come to a point where you your life is going to be terrible and you won't be able to do anything. And I had three cousins with ALS. Mm -hmm. You don't want to go through that. It's, it's horrible. Right. So it was Alzheimer's. Right. And, and it's those both are very, can be very prolonged. Okay, so that's what we're discussing. Right. Um, I mean, we're going to try to... We're not discussing that the, those situations so much because in, in term, from a Jewish perspective, that's just incredibly unanimous in terms of Jewish law that those cases, if you have months to years to live, you can't hasten death. I mean, that's pretty much, you know, accepted. And I don't know any... Uh, even even across the spectrum you're talking of about the, the good death. Yeah. Euthanasia is the good death. Right. Those things, you can't have a good death. There are certain things we can Well, there's a different, what I'm saying is there's different ideas of what the good death is. So here we're looking at, a, at uh, an idea of a good death that's, that's based in a Christian culture. Yeah. Um, so where hastening death isn't, isn't, wasn't seen as something that was problematic necessarily early on. And, and the Torah doesn't consider a good death living your life one, you know, Bar Hashem, you know, healthy. Right. And then there's a point in time where you can't basically do anything for yourself, or that's not. And, but if you die, whenever you die, that's a good death. That's what the Torah considers. That's what it seems. Even I though mean, you, particularly as a person, do not, would never ever consider that a good death. The idea is that every mo moment of your life is, is, first of all, isn't yours to determine when it begins or ends. Um, uh, your life is, every moment of your life is valuable. Meaning that the, we don't, the Jewish sources don't tend to see death as something to look forward to. Um, whereas there, if you look at the Christian sources, there's this idea of you know, yeah, going to right. heaven and you're going to be with, you know, yeah, uh, Jesus. Yeah, Muslims and Christians have, right, have and a, a thing to look forward to. You right. Don't give us that. Well, we, we do. You know, it's funny. It's sort of like uh, where is it's not like Ju Judaism is uh, agnostic about what happens. No, there's you know your soul survives and you go right. and there is heaven. It just right. not. It doesn't kind of celebrate it. So this life is what we're worried about. That that's the thrust you get from from, yes, from most of the Jewish side. That this life is what's important now. You know, whatever's afterwards, you know, worry about it's later. Like as long. I mean. I, you know, that's obviously, I guess when we get to that, we can discuss it, but, keep us alive right because in the olden days we would never be alive for that right correct but is that what how God wants us to live our life if we can't be his those clearly themes that clearly come up not explicitly in halachic dis discussions because that's generally not the way they function so much they don't look at the um, theology which is saying uh, right what does God want and if I'm here to perform mitzvot then let's say once I'm unconscious and I'm you know my unable. unable then 
maybe that, and then have that debate about that. That's not generally how it works. Um, but that those ideas emerge, so you see them coming up because there's not a lot to, Do they to work come with. Up more now in modern time than in um, Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, they have to because right. then, I mean, you, again, death is so different then. Yeah. You didn't have those problems. So when we look at those sources, right? You have to you have to keep those things in mind. So if we look at biblical sources, which I'm not really going to look at much, is the, the, the story. Uh, the only story we have, like really hastening death, is uh, King Saul. Right as he's come to the end of his life and he loses the battle, he's already at the end. He doesn't want um, he doesn't want to be killed by the you know by the enemy. So he it looks like he kills himself. But then if you look in later interpreters, a, there's all uh, we're talking about the biblical period. So early okay. biblical right we're, that's Masada's post for sure okay. you know post biblical period second you know post second temple period. Even so, so um, so there you see it can be reinterpreted. He was already dying. He wasn't really killing them. the people. Were, they were clearly uncomfortable with that idea that you could that a righteous person, even though he was considered to have done bad things, he was still considered to have died a righteous person. Um, that he would have taken his own life uh, prematurely. So they're very uncomfortable with that idea. Now Masada is very interesting. You don't see Masada mentioned. It's not mentioned in the Talmud not mentioned, you know, these, these stories, um, they were known, they didn't, uh, they didn't valorize it, so, uh, it's interesting, there was like, in, in, um, in Israeli culture, Masada became a touchstone, um, but, uh, in rabbinic culture, not, not, you know, so, uh, but, again, what did it mean? It's a difference, there's also a difference between dying in battle and martyrdom in general, where you see things a little differently. So again, in a case of martyrdom, it might be that um, you see sources that allow someone to choose death. So that's, in some cases, someone must choose death um, instead of violating certain commandments, like the three cardinal ones, right? So uh, instead of killing someone else, or instead of committing, um, you know, um, adultery, or uh, right. Exactly. So, a person has to has to choose death in those cases. So then, I mean, that leads to then another question: is is the model for choosing death is it within the framework of martyrdom, and everything else? It should move from that discussion. That would have been one way you could have seen things progress. That's not how they did progress. So, martyrdom was sort of kept in a corner as like a very special case, you know. And so you see it developing. Um, through especially the Middle Ages, when um, when the Tosafists began talking about, meaning the Tosafists, who were the rabbis of the Ashkenazi communities that were um, attacked during the Crusades, so people were actually killing themselves, even killing their children, and so that discussion comes up again. It doesn't when then when you look at modern sources talking about dying today in the in the hospital, uh, medical treatment at the end of life, those don't come up. Maybe. I'm not saying that that was like uh, necessarily the the right way to go. Maybe that maybe those discussions maybe have more to do with each other, and we'll see one case where it seems like it would. Okay. Yet the the way it's interpreted tends to be otherwise. So let's look at the um, let's look at the, the rabbinic sources. Um, so the Mishnah says. Um, 
one may not close the eyes of a corpse on the Sabbath, nor on weekdays. Um, now it says, um, one closes the eyes of a dying person at the point of death um, is murderer, is a murderer. Um, now the Gemara says, Tanur Rabbanan, our rabbis taught, he who closes the eyes of a dying man at the point of death is a murderer. Mashal um, um, So this is making hair to a lamp that is going out, uh, meaning that it's still, it's still lit. Adam um, If a man puts his finger on it, immediately is extinguished. Um, Okay, so what do we see from this? And this the um, person who is about to die, um, the, the term isn't used here, but it's used elsewhere in the Talmud, is the goseis. And that the definition of goseis is someone who's basically in the throes of death and is probably has no more than two to three days to live. So with that doctrine, we're actually, I'm going to skip that to the last source first. And we're going to skip sort of some of the other uh, Talmudic stuff and go back to it afterwards. So if you look at the last source, um, unfortunately I didn't, I couldn't find a, a, a easy to use uh, English translation. This is the Shulchan Aruch, right? So we're we're looking from we're skipping ahead from the the, the Mishnah. We're looking at from fourth century down to around 16, middle seventeenth uh, century. Um, Hagoseis, the dying person. Sorry, that would be the last source there. Sorry about that. So you, I'm going to translate it. Um, Hagoseis, the dying person. Hareu kechayil chodvarav. He's considered alive for all matters. In koshin chayav, in sachinotov, in metichinotov. You should not tie his um, his cheeks together. You don't. You you basically um, don't do anything to him. You don't. You shouldn't touch him at all. Um, uh, you don't even like remove a pillow from him from from beneath him you don't place him on the ground meaning you don't start to do especially you especially don't start to do things that you would do after death you don't begin any of those processes before him um um so, and then again, it's re- basically repeating what the Mishnah said. One does not close his eyes until his soul departs. Um, um, you're a murderer if you do so. Um, uh, not only are you not allowed to do physical actions that could hasten death uh, uh, directly to the body, but you don't do things that would psychologically uh, hasten death either by tearing clothing before death or uh, you know uh, wailing and eulogizing the um, uh, you don't bring uh, you know the um, um, you don't bring the uh, um, the coffin sorry but you don't bring the coffin into the house while he's still alive all these things psychologically are about to would have, would hiss in um, death. Um, now, the the second paragraph is from uh, Rav Moshe Eserlis, the who wrote a gloss on the Shulchan Aruch, 
not long after it was published, instead of writing his own code of Jewish law, he wrote a gloss on this one. Um, and he was writing from an Ashkenazi perspective. Shulchan Aruch was written by a uh, Sephardic rabbi who was in uh, Svad and Safed in Israel at the time. Um, in the bold it says, V'chein asur legrom lemeit sheamut mehera you're, it is um, prohibited to cause uh, someone to die more quickly. Um, for example, someone who is in the dying process, who is moribund, but it's protracted. And so again, he asur um, You cannot move the pillow or the mattress underneath him. Um, um, okay, and now he continues saying you should not um, move him at all. The chen asur lasum nafechot beit hakneset tachat roshok deishi pared. So there were these beliefs about what would allow a person to die quickly. Some of them very strange, some of them involve birds, some of them involve taking the keys to the synagogue, placing it under underneath him, underneath the head. Aval, now here's the important caveat. In Yesh Sham Gorem if there's something that is merely preventing the departure of the soul, Kigon Shesh Samuch Loto Bayit Koldofik, Kigon Kotevetin for example, if there is a knocking sound, um, such as someone chopping trees, Oshiesh Melach al or they had placed salt on the tongue, that was believed to prevent the soul from leaving. Um, these things are preventing the soul from departing. Mutar you can remove them, meaning you can make sure the person stops cutting wood, you can remove the salt. This is not an active action. You're merely removing that which is preventing. So that, that's like the touchstone source. This is based, um, again, it's important here that this is an Ashkenazic source. He's familiar with his book, Sefer Hasidim, which is an important bo- um, book of Ashkenazic customs and lore. Um, which is basically quoting from, so that there's these things that prevent the soul from departing. You're allowed to, you're allowed to remove them. Um, are there different Sephardi and Ashkenazi views overall? Not in this in this area, uh, not that much, not that much. So you don't see. This isn't like he's disagreeing with the previous source. He's sort of like adding to it. So he's saying, okay, you're not allowed to do anything that will hasten death, but okay. Yeah. But here he's quoting from this book. There are things that aren't hastening that. They're just they're just removing the hindrance to death to proceed. So of course the question is, you know, how do you move from uh, you know someone chopping wood to a respirator to artificial nutrition, uh, those kinds of things? How does that? How does one relate to the other? And that's the that's the challenge that um, the halachists have to deal with. But I never heard of any like a way to prevent the departure of the soul I never heard of anything yeah, these are medieval yeah, so, so I, I wouldn't expect you to be familiar no, I, with them I never even knew that there was ways of preventing I, I, I don't I, I don't think these are yeah. things that will actually 
do anything. That's what the beliefs were. There was something about okay, uh, superstition. Superstition. Yeah, I, I mean, we would call them superstition. I mean, well, we're not supposed. They're to about the, their beliefs of that have to do with the soul. So I mean, I would, I obviously I don't want to call beliefs regarding the soul superstition because you know right. we believe there's a soul. We can't see it. We believe in it. So I would call these you know beliefs regarding the soul, the, the, the way the, the soul... Well, inter- if you're going to keep the person the body, alive, you're going to prevent the soul from leaving. Clearly. <laughs> the question is, what, what falls into the category of things that are hastening death, and what falls into the category of removing hindrances? Um, so that's the major question that they have to deal with. Um, so that, here you, you have a halachic text to work with. Great. On the other hand, the real question is what falls into each category. And so that's where the major differences come in. And to, in order to, to deal with those, um, halakhas turn often now, where you, uh, in cases like this, to agadic texts. Not to legal texts, but to the, to the lore, to the stories in the Talmud, to, to look for, for guidance in this area. So now we're going to go back to the second source. Um, Yuma Rebbe. So on the, on the, this is, there has a series of stories about the death of Rebbe, the famous Rebbe Huda Hanasi, the compiler of the Mishnah. Um, so there's a number of stories about his death. Um, his, this is one of them. On the day when uh, when he died, the rabbis decreed a public fast and they offered prayers for, heaven, for heavenly mercy. Um, furthermore, announced that whoever said that Rebbe, that that uh, Rebbe was already dead would be stabbed with a sword. I don't know if literally or figuratively, but anyone who, who went around rumor mongers who were going to, you know, spread the news of the death, you know, you can see how that could happen. He was such a, uh, a revered person that they wanted to prevent that from happening. That, uh, but then it says, um, his, um, Rebbe's handmaid, handmaiden, uh, uh, handmaid, ascended to the roof and prayed. Um, and it, she, from other stories, she's um, described in ways that show her to be very wise. Um, so she ascended to the roof and prayed. She said the following: "The, the immortals, those above, uh, let me just try and use my translation. El Yonei et Rebbe. Those above are." Requesting Rebbe, the, you mean the heavens, are, and those below, his students and the rabbis are are praying for him to remain here. Um, may the those below overcome those above, overpower. May their prayers be strong enough to keep him alive. Um, however, kevan dechazai kama zimne de'ayal betakisei. When she saw how often he had to struggle to go to the bathroom, and each time he would have to remove his phylacteries, put them back on, and it was greatly painful. Um, um, so at that point, when she, she saw this, Amra, um, she said the following, she reversed it. May the may the, those above overpower those below. Meaning, she saw it would be better if he if they let him die. And she felt that what was preventing him from dying was the the, the prayers. Um, the rabbis never wouldn't cease um, praying, asking uh, for uh, mercy from the heavens. So shakla kuza. Um, 
Shadaya Megra Va'arash. So she took a small jug and she threw it from the roof uh, to the ground. Ishtiku um, Mirachmet. So the rabbi stopped praying for a moment. The Rebbe and his soul departed. Now there, there's no comment after this about whether, but so it seems like this is seen as an improving. She did something proper. That they were these prayers were not making. He was not. He wasn't going to recover. He wasn't going to get better. It was just prolonging his agony at the end of his life. She pre- so she stopped. Um, she stopped to prevent him from doing it. From do, uh, the prayers that loud allowed him to die. That happened to me. My aunt was she was living horrible, horrible living. And one Shabbos, I decided I'm I'm not making a mishabera for her anymore. I don't. It was just too painful. So and she died. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't. I mean, I I was so glad that she was finished. This terrible pain. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that happened, if it helped, but that's how I felt. Mm-hmm. That I was just wasn't going to pray for that anymore. Right. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly. Well, I right. know people are sick, like like with Alzheimer's and things like that. Oh. I don't pray for their uh, speedy recovery. I pray for whatever Hashem deems that they need to happen. <laughs> right. To happen. And so and we'll um, skip one source that exactly says this right. explicitly. Um, Again, this is uh, the top of, this, of the second page. The Ron. This is a commentary on the Talmud. He's um, looking. Ah, no, sorry. Let's look before that. First, we'll look at the Talmudic p- passage that he's commenting on. What? So, here, Repelbo. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Repelbo fell ill. Thereupon, Ravkana went and proclaimed Repelbo is sick. Made a public announcement, but no one visited him. So he rebuked them and the scholars, the colleagues of his colleagues, saying, Did it not once happen that, Rabbi, that one of Rabbi Kiva's disciples fell ill and the sages did not visit him? So Rabbi Kiva himself entered his house to visit him. And because they swept and sprinkled the brown before him, he recovered. Um, now exactly why? I mean, because he said an important person came in, they finally, you know, here someone was not, like in the corner was sick and people weren't paying attention to him. So it seems like uh, important... Um, source for visiting the sick um, uh, my master said he the sick person said to Rabbi Akiva you have revived me um, your presence is what is what brought me back to life may, uh, may it help me recover um, now, so it seems if my reading of this is that the psychological um, benefit of, of, of having his, his uh, teacher come visit him and that suddenly people around the house weren't in this like state of uh, death watch but right. ah an important person is here you know and suddenly they're t- you know uh, changes changes the whole mood you know that revived him so at that point Rabbi Kiva went forth and lectured he who does not visit the sick is like a shedder of blood mm-hmm. I mean, someone literally is, is like a murderer someone who doesn't visit the sick um, when Ravdimi came Ravdimi when he came to um, to Bavel from Israel um, he said he who visits the sick causes him to live Whilst he who does not ca- does not causes him to die, so the the Talmud asks, how does he how does he cause this? I mean, how does not visiting actually cause him to die? Uh, shall we say that he who visits the sick prays that he may live, while he who does not prays that he should die? I mean, what, what's going on? Is it if someone comes to visit someone who's I meaning they're saying what's the process here? So I give my psychological explanation. That's not how they interpret it. They think the merit of praying is what keeps someone alive. But what does it? What does it mean that causes him to die? So there's someone who not visits the sick person. Does he, does he actively pray for the person to die? 
So it says not that he should die. Can you really think so? I mean, you know, so it rejects as the Talmud is the way the Talmud it rejects. It, it offers up a sort of ridiculous response and rejects it out of hand. Rather, um, say thus: He who does not visit uh, the sick prays neither that he may live nor die. So that's an interesting thing. So he could have just this Talmud here. It could have said, "What's the, what's the problem with not visiting the sick?" Could have just said, "You don't pray for him to live." But it says he, he neither prays for him to live or die. So what does that mean? What does it mean? He neither doesn't doesn't do either. So the Ran, who's a medieval commentary on the Talmud, says the following: In rachamim lo lo He does not. What does it mean that he doesn't request? The problem is that he doesn't request that the person should live or die. Uh, it seems to me that this is the meaning of the, of the, of the Talmud here. There are times when a person should pray that a sick person should die. For example, in cases where he's very, um, um, he's in a lot of pain uh, from his illness. The and the person himself doesn't want, doesn't, doesn't have any desire to live anymore. And then he goes and quotes this previous um, source that we looked at with the maid, the maid servant who went up uh, to pray for his death and even um, interrupted the rabbi's prayers so that Rebbe could die. Um, So and then he says, "Umis sheino mevakro ino tsarich lomar sheino moilo lachiot ela afilu hecha di ikale hanah bimita afilu oto zutra zutrati ino mehanah." So even so, a person who doesn't visit the sick, he doesn't pr- he doesn't really understand the situation. That he, so he doesn't he doesn't pray at all. He doesn't not, if he prays for the person to get better, it's not. Uh, it's not uh, a fervent enough prayer because he hasn't seen the person in the situation. And if he prays, and he's not going to pray for him to get uh, to die because he also he doesn't see that the situation warrants that. So you have to visit the person so you know what to pray for. Should you pray for a recovery or should you, should you pray for, um, for the person to, to, but also to die? Visiting the sick is psychologically, um, it makes you better. Yeah. And you can't just decide not to visit the sick because right. it's, it's medicine. Yeah, yeah. As, as is often the case, what you see is that we look at sources in the Talmud and say there's a really good psychological explanation. Yeah. It's Rabbi Akiva went to visit his student, and you know, he said, Rab, um, "My teacher, you've revived me." Uh, yeah, you know. It's, yeah, then the Talmud gives like a very technical explanation of well, what does it mean that uh, he revived him? It was through prayer. I, mean, um, I, I 100% agree with you. It's just interesting to say to see when we look at the sources, we have a different mindset. They're looking for the sort of a technical uh, explanation about why, uh, what was the efficacious about visiting. Um, it can't simply be that <laughs> they don't give the explanation that visiting is just, you know, beneficial for someone's uh, dis- psychological disposition and and and. Being in a better disposition, you know, helps you get better. So certainly true. Just when we look at the sources, they're looking; uh, they have a different perspective. Um, so, but we go back to the sources. We can read them in a way that uh, makes sense to us as well. Um, so then, one more source. Uh, so, so so far we've seen uh, certainly um, you can remove uh, hindrance to dying, and certainly you can pray for someone to die. Now we get to a source that is very. Uh, 
it's ambiguous in a lot of ways. Um, so this is the source. It's called the, the martyrdom. Again, I said, as I mentioned before, martyrdom seems to be in a little bit of a different category. Yeah. And it's usually not brought into these discussions, but this is the one source that, really, that actually is. So um, that's at the bottom of the first page. Um, they found Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. Um, so they found him, this is again the time when the, the Romans were in the Roman uh, occupation of, of Judea. So they found, um, and according to the Talmud, there was a prohibition about publicly teaching Torah. So they found Rabbi Hanina Tradion sitting and occupying himself with the Torah publicly, uh, gathering assemblies and keeping the scroll of the law in his bosom. Like he was holding a Torah scroll. Straight away, they took hold of him and they wrapped him in this Torah scroll. Uh, they placed him in uh, bundles of branches around him and set them on fire. Um, they then brought tufts of wool, which they had soaked in water, and placed them over his heart so that he would not expire quickly. And then this famous, uh, his daughter exclaimed, Father, that I should see you in this state. He replied, if it were I alone being burnt, it would have been a, th- a thing t- hard to bear. Now that I'm burning out the scroll of the law, he will have regard for the plight of the Torah, will also have regard for my plight. Um, meaning he's saying it's a better that I, uh, the fact that I'm being burnt with a Torah scroll means that God will have you know, more uh, mercy on my soul. Um, his disciples called out, uh, Rabbi, what, what seest thou? He answered them, the parchments are being burnt, but the letters are soaring on high. So that's a famous quotation. Um, so then the student said to him the following, open your mouth, so that the fire enter, enters, so you'll die quickly. Here, and then he replied, Let him who gave me my soul take it away, but no one should injure oneself. So he's saying, you're not allowed to hasten your death. If you're, uh, you know, you're not allowed to do something to, 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 to die quickly. It's up to God when you, when you live, when, when, when you're going to die. Um, but then... You have this, but then, okay, so is, that, is this where it ends? No, the, then the executioner said to him, Rabbi, if I raise the flame and take away the tufts of wool from over your heart, will you cause me to enter and the life to come? Will I get, will I merit to, you know, uh, olam haba? Um, yes, he replied. <coughs> so then he made him swear. The executioner made him swear that this would be the case. So he swore. So the executioner then raised the flames and removed the tufts of wool from over his heart, and his soul departed speedily. The executioner then jumped and threw himself into the fire, and a heavenly voice exclaimed, a batkol, a heavenly voice exclaimed, the Kanina ben Tradion and the executioner have been assigned to the world to come. When Rebbe heard this, he wept and said, one may acquire eternal life in a single hour or another after many years. (coughs) So... So here we see two seemingly contradictory things. On the one hand, Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion is saying, I can't do anything to... It's up to God. On the other hand, when he's asked explicitly by the executioner, should I, you know, take away the wool, increase the fire, you'll die more quickly, and will that be a meritorious thing for me? I know, with that one act, it says he merited the, you know, olam haba. He... He didn't pull the plug. It was just yeah. He he, he you know he's, he's, he stuck in the needle. He you know plunged in the, the whatever. Um, so this is like the this is like the sort of the key puzzling text. What's going on here? So we already know that okay. So to pray for someone to die is okay. To remove an impediment to death is okay. But what's going on here? So um, so on the one hand you could say well this. 
this was all an impediment to death. The the wool around his heart that was just keeping him from from. Uh, yeah, what about what about? I was keeping him alive, so you can remove that. But what about increasing the flames? That's not an impediment to death. That's yeah. you know that's uh, cooking him faster. You know that's uh, you know. Seems like it's it like opposite. It, right. It seems like it's actively yes, causing his death. So then you can say, okay, well, this is an ex- the executioner. The executioner wasn't Jewish. So perhaps there's a difference in Jewish law and what's required of Jews and what's required of non-Jews. Um, now, I don't, I don't mention this just because I oh, the Jews, non-Jews, different moral systems. Um, but it's important to think of it this way. Sometimes in Jewish law, there are requirements that are recognized as not being universal. It's not that this legal requirement conveys absolute morality that everyone in the, uh, in the world has to follow. So there's a position that actually says this. So Jews have a technical requirement to not do anything to hasten their own deaths, except, again, except in the case of martyrdom, where they're allowed to choose death, where they have to, or where they have to choose death. Uh, but non-Jews aren't bound by that. Um, and I think it's important to know that. So if you see Jew- uh, the debates about you know, euthanasia, you don't necessarily have to say, well, this is the Jewish view, every moment of life is precious, um, every chance you have to, to, you know, until your dying breath, you, you shouldn't do anything to hasten your, to hasten, do anything to hasten death. Um, that's not necessarily, that's maybe a theological position that's by and for Jews. It's not necessarily something that everyone else has to subscribe to. But it, it goes the other way, too, because if, if you're pregnant and you go to a Catholic hospital and it's a, it's a decision between the mother and the baby, the mother's gone. That's the Catholic way. You save the baby. If you, the Jewish way is just completely the opposite. Uh, the Catholic one is actually often, no, don't do anything. And whatever and whatever God's will will, will be. And if they both die, they both die. So, uh, just to be clear, that's actually... More in line with Catholic, Catholic doctrine, not necessarily save the baby at the expense of the mother. If, if, if saving the baby will actively kill the mother, they won't generally do really? that. Really? Yeah. But if but if letting things go to the natural course, the baby will survive. That's you know, okay. but that's that's neither here nor there for our current discussion. Yeah. So um, if we have a Jewish hospital, does it have to follow these guidelines? Well, again. Uh, in America, no. But in Israel, interestingly, <laughs> you actually had hospitals that were started by religious organizations and explicitly follow, uh, you know, religious guidelines. So, Bikur um, Cholim Hospital, Sharei Tzedek Hospital, were started by religious organizations, and they are bound by the rulings of their official rabbinic committees. Uh, however that may be. So that creates a whole problem in Israel. Um, but first, let's look at, so what are the major positions that come out of these stories? So one of them is, says, what is a hindrance to death? What's, 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 what's considered today a hindrance to death? I can give you a list. Right, so, um, is the distinction between, so somebody make a distinction between things like medical treatments that are 
prolonging death so that you can stop those medical treatments like, let's say, um, antibiotics or, <coughs> or obviously artificial resuscitation doesn't have to be done if someone's dying. What about the other And in fact, our right. Well, let's uh, let's get get there in a second. Okay. So they actually so based on the first source we saw, which says you're not allowed to touch the person who's dying, might hasten their death. So that's saying they they general agreement is that that can easily be used to rule out any number of invasive invasive treatments. So. Um, so don't start any kinds of treatments if the person is already in the process, the last stage of dying, the last two to three days of life. Don't begin any treatments. You really don't want to touch the patient. Um, you could do, aside from doing things that will, you know, uh, lessen their pain, things like that. But any treatment that's, it's obviously it's not going to be helping them. It might even be causing them to die faster. So, so don't do that. Now, what about treatments that are already ongoing? This is where it really gets tricky. So someone... Just, does that yeah. mean if you don't touch them yet that you can't give them a painkiller either? No, they mean don't touch them in a way... Of course, so the other reading they gave... Them First of all, they say don't touch him. You know, it's really... If you look at the, the doctors who... The, sorry, the rabbis who write these things are often in very close consultation with doctors. So they say, well, is there any chance that doing such and such will, oh, you know, will, will hasten death? And, you know, like uh, injecting such and such amount of painkiller. Yeah. Say, no, no, that's fine. There's nothing like that. Um, but things like, you know, if you, unfortunately, you've ever had to wit witness uh, them repeatedly um, doing CPR at the end of life, uh, things like that, really not, it's really violent. Um, now, why, so that's, that's like one of the things that people generally don't want done. I don't want extraordinary measures taken. So that's very much in line with, uh, with Jewish teaching. By the time you're at that stage of, of dying, you can forgo any, anything like that. Um, now it comes more tricky is it's things like these like cancer treatments, um, which I'll just get to in a second. But the, there's a difference of opinion about hydration and respiration, meaning a respirator and having artificial nutrition. Um, there are those who see it as medical treatments because they're artificial, um, especially artificial nutrition. It's like well, if, since it's not normal eating, it's like a, it's as if it was a medication, and perhaps. You can you can discontinue it, especially since when you discontinue it, that doesn't cause death immediately. Um, but the respirator is more complicated because if somebody's dependent on a respirator, then when you take them off, they really will will die quite soon. So the respirator became has become a uh, became really a focal point of what's going on in in Israel. So basically, what the solution they came up with as halacha sometimes does is a technical solution. So put either put the put the respirator or oxygen tank um, instead of being on a continuous feed, put it on an individual tank, or put the respirator on some kind of countdown timer. Each time that the the respirator shuts off, you can then see if the person can breathe on their own. Um, and if they can, you should resume it just to, to, so so that they don't. And if they really can't, then they'll die. So you didn't actively do it. 
or if they if you stop it and then they really request that or the family requests it you don't have to resume it so again there's showing a difference between actively hastening death and passively doing it. those distinctions for halachic in halachic thought make make a very big difference active and passive um, and uh, in Catholic thought there's also a doctrine of, uh, of double effect uh, which is a little bit different but they basically say if you administer enough uh, painkillers but the intent is to is to cause merely to take away the pain even though if you know this dose will really hasten death you can do it you can do that um, Jewish law doesn't work quite that way but in some cases there are rabbis whose positions come very close to that, saying you can administer painkillers, even though probably they'll die a little sooner. But you know, since that's appropriate, like, but if the intent really is to hasten death, you know, that's off the table. But if but if it's a difference between hastening death and having a good death, I mean, that that was what that euthanasia is having a peaceful death. That's one idea of having a peaceful death, having a good death. Because one idea of having a good death is having a peaceful not death. Not pain. Right, right. And one idea, but you know, for certain rabbis, the idea of a good death is one in which you cling to life as long as possible. You know, that is that is their idea of a good death. Is there any? I mean, aside from the Mishnah Gemara, I mean, obviously it has to have some basis in the Torah. Mm-hmm. Where is? Which where would that basis be in the Torah that we have to, you know, cling to regardless? Cling to, yeah. um, I mean, is there? Do you know of any? I mean, that there, the idea of that there's such a thing as a gosais that someone who's dying and you're touching them is, uh, you know, extinguish their life. That's not in right. the Torah. The idea that um, is basically comes out of the the idea that you violate any law to save someone's life. So if you take the whole canon of Jewish law and consistently they put the preservation of life as a principle that goes above all others. So from there, say life is more important than, you know, than anything else, more important than any other God's commandments. So from there emerges this this doctrine. now, um, now, where it gets where I, where I where we were going is with with ongoing treatments that that someone who is of sound mind really wants to discontinue. Um, so there again, there's here there's really, really two main schools of thought. Um, basically, one says, which is. This is sort of the, this is basically the position of Rav Moshe Feinstein, who was an American halachic uh, authority. Basically, says you honor someone's wishes to discontinue treatment if they're in, if it's if the treatments themselves or their you know overall health is such that their quality of life or the the way their their own life is experienced just pain and right. they don't see anything any good, then there you can honor their requests. That doesn't mean he thinks that that's necessarily, if somebody decides, you know, I'm going to hold on to the end, they might say that as being a very righteous act. Um, but somebody who doesn't want to, they don't, you don't have to force someone to be, uh, 
to be uh, a tzaddik. You know, if somebody is allowed to allowed to decide that on their own, slightly different position emerged um, in Israel among the main um, halachic authority, uh, Rabbi Orbach. So he allows um, basically. And he doesn't necessarily say that somebody who's actively saying, no, I don't want this treatment, that you can necessarily override their wishes. But in cases where the person's wishes aren't clear or where it's only the family who's requesting it, he's pretty firm that says, <coughs> and even when the person is re- requesting it, you should basically you should push them in the other direction and say every moment of life <coughs> is, infinite, is infinite worth. Um, that So... One in America, one in Israel. You have somewhat different, somewhat different understanding of uh, when it comes to uh, these tr- these kinds of treatments, which are often um, it's not. You're, you're, we're not talking about someone who's about to die. We're talking about somebody who's making a decision about treatments that could prolong their life a few months. Again, I'm not. Gonna, I don't want to. My interest is not necessarily like the, giving you the technical halachic details. Some draw a line at three months, and some at six months, and these have to do with. Um, other laws that are um, about another category, which just if you ever come across it, there's a category called trefa, somebody who is, has less than a year to live based on some uh, congenital defect or some disease. So they draw the line at different places, and I could, you know, we could run through the whole gamut of someone says three months, someone says six months, someone says you know two weeks, things like that. But the basic idea is that you have a position that says honor a person's wishes if they if they're if a treatment is clearly painful or, they're, or they're, the disease itself is causing them a great deal of pain honor their wishes to, to discontinue That's treatment a lot of that is yeah um, you know on the other hand yeah right on the other hand there's a lot of um, discussion just it, it's interesting in this source where it said um, uh, at the end of at the top of page three, that uh, to one of the physicians present present described a case where at the request of parents he had administered um, ether to a child suffocating from this croup, um, quote not less to the relief of the parents than to that of the patient. So it's, it's it's very important to distinguish. There are times when people are dying and they're unconscious, and we perceive that as that they're in some state of pain because they're shifting around and things like that but not necessarily in pain and the fact that it's psychologically painful for us that's not the justification itself and you know but if you're okay so back to the not the cancer but even the uh, the uh, Alzheimer's we all know that people think we live live 10, 15 years with Alzheimer's and certainly live in a life of not knowing anything that goes on. But why are they living? Because of many of the medications that they are taking or the treatments that they receive to, should I say, enhance their life. For instance, if they fall, and a lot of them fall, they hurt their, they break their hip. Right. You are going to get them either a hip replacement or whatever, because that's what we do. But the bottom line is, a hip replacement, you know, again, if they did not get the hip replacement, or they, their treatment wasn't the same as it would be if, if the person was a healthy person, their life may not be as prolonged. Again, I'm not saying that we should you know, right. kill everybody. 
they have Alzheimer's. So I'm saying if the person who, based on what you said, the person who is has the Alzheimer's says, once I go into the state of no, you know, non-knowledge, uh, do not, do not give me a hip replacement. Do not give me treatments to prolong. Just let it be. Let me go to the normal state, and whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. Are you allowed to respect that wish, or you don't know? That's a rabbi. Again, question. it's like a, it's a rabbi question, and they again they like to look at technical ways to answer them. So, if the, a lot of times. Okay, I'll see you then. So a lot of times you'll see the, um, the, the way that it's parsed is in terms of risk. So um, a, a medical treatment that um, the benefits and risks are a certain ratio, they can take similarly for a go. So I like to like put it in those terms. Well, since there's a risk of death, or of actually um, someone dying during the surgery, if it raises above a certain amount, then you can certainly forego it. Etc. So they like to look more at these individual and more technical things than to say straight out, yeah, somebody actually expressed those wishes, uh, respect them. They, they like to say, well, what's the actual surgery involved and what is it? Could someone speak to Rabbi before they begin their, uh, once they are diagnosed with that? Before they're. Yeah, I mean, so could. I mean, whether, which rabbi is actually. Uh, <laughs> Going to be, you know, so I mean, I, I, I'd find it. Um, I mean, look, people, you, no one's, no rabbis are holding guns to anyone's head, so you know. Um, I, I mean, when, in the specific case of Alzheimer's, I mean, it's always difficult because um, you see people who have advanced stage Alzheimer's in the right setting. They seem to be, yeah, they're not insult, but they're not. Subjectively, they don't seem to be in pain or, uh, you know, in con a constant state of confusion and and just psychological right. distress. Yeah. And you see others who are. So, you know, it's there's but a. But you look at some of them. I mean, I'm, and I go to a uh, home where yeah. unfortunately many. Some of them just sit there in their in their in their in a chair and. They don't have any life in their eyes at all. That that means anything. Yeah. Nothing. There's no. You can walk past them. You can talk to them. There is nothing. And it's just it's so it's harsh because you kind of you know you say to yourself is that like that life is that is that the life that we are are you know we're so we're so big on protecting. I I mean it's just I mean and it's these hard. These people are clearly being kept alive because of medicine or whatever they're taking. Right. Um, again, it's hard to, it's hard to, to, um, it's, it's hard to, like, this, this say, in, in, in some cases, it's clear that if you see, so you, in some cases, you see people with Alzheimer's, and they still exist socially mm -hmm. within a family or, you know, within an institution that respects them so it's hard to say like I, I it would be hard for me to I don't nobody's come back from There's Alzheimer's no to say to say oh I know what it's like you know and I wouldn't want that you know right. go you know no one's recovered and said you know what I want I don't want to relapse into Alzheimer's yeah so it's ethical and it's there's just a danger when when 
give people the power to right and then it said who are we are we uh, are we benefiting them or are we benefiting you know ourselves Um, we don't know that's basically that's basically it but again we're looking at old sor- at sources and... Uh, are there new sources that rabbis are creating in today's halakhic world or they don't tend to write halakhic? No, they write halakhic they write, they write responsa, but the touchstones always have to be precedents that exist before and textual precedents mostly. So that's the way, that's the way conservative legal systems function. They don't create things out of whole cloth. They cobble together... And things that hopefully something, yeah, hopefully something coherent emerges from it. But I assume that in, in the modern day there's several varying approaches on how to deal with all this from several different halakhic, basically saying halakhic yeah. rule reading. Everyone yeah. has their own interpretation. Right, right. You, there's no clear path from some text to some conclusion. And it's always a matter of interpretation. Um, and not surprisingly, like within um, or within or within Orthodox halachic discussions, there's a fairly narrow range of interpretation. You get beyond that, then you get m- more into the um, more into looking at uh, agadic texts, not halachic texts, in isolate uh, in isolation, and saying, well, what. Well, What's the moral message from this text? I think it's that again. It's also interpretation, obviously. Well, I think the more, more the message, the, the underlying moral um, um, idea of this text is that you can hasten people's death if they're under great suffering. You know, you can read it, read the text that way. Um, on balance, people who are you know going this cons- uh, a, a, a process, it tends to be rely on textual precedent are not going to come to that conclusion because the most determinative factor is going to be the explicitly halachic texts that say anything you do to hasten death is murder you know so so that's just going to be the that's going to be the main the main thing anything you want to get, do to get around you have to interpret it as not hastening death you're just merely you know taking, taking away. away an impediment or you're doing something that's really really passive so you're not actively doing something. You're just, you know, refusing treatment. You're, you're not, uh, you're not even, you're, you're not withdrawing treatment. Treatment already stopped. So you're not resuming treatment. You know, it's always going to try to be uh, leave the text. You don't want to. They, they want to leave the texts as they are and work around them <laughs> interpretively. That's generally the way those uh, those work. Um, but you do see the idea that if people, once they're in a totally non-unconscious state, um, it's easier to sort of characterize them as goses, as that in that stage, and to be more um, tolerant of like basically treatment. Let's stop treatment. So it's usually once that 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 part that time occurs, and you're in the hospital, and you're. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, it's also. The context is important. People are dying in hospitals, and they're in a. The medical setting is is not pu- medical setting in general is not pushing to say let's okay, do less. Let me say, if, you're, if you have terminal cancer and you you your doctors, there's nothing else you're going to do, and you know what you could see in the hospital. They'll put you in IV and blah blah blah. 
Or you can say, you know, I'm going right. home. I don't think anyone's going to for no one's going to force you to be in a hospital and um, say, you know, I'm. Right, but being in the hospital could prolong your life by whatever, however, whatever. But you know, you, by being at home and not getting the whatever treatment they're giving you, you're you're, you're definitely hastening it. Right. Yeah, I mean, or you're not prolonging it. Again, it's all. Right. It's it's semantics. It's interpretation. It's uh, I mean, again, the the context of the medical system is we we what can we do next? It's not let's. It's not we've we've done everything we can do until really really late in the process. Correct. And that in a in a in a in a way that's why they introduced the idea of having a separate hospice system. It's because the medical system wants to function as let's do everything we can till the end, and it it functions. That's sort of its ethos. On the other hand, people when you, so so if you want to if that's not what you want, don't be in the hospital. So th- there's really interesting. Right, okay. um, so there's a really interesting um, editorial, an op-ed that this this um, doctor wrote a, f- a few years ago in the New York Times, uh, and he said. In his conversation with his with other doctors, they um, speaking about colleagues who had died. He had he just occurred to him, oh, none of them died in hospital. So they knew that's not you know if they if they were in the hospital that's they weren't going to have the kind of death that they wanted. They wanted they wanted a peaceful death. They didn't want. It's not like they said, oh, I'll go to the hospital. I'll write up these all these advanced directives, uh, and they'll be respect. They knew that's not you know that's not always. Um, it's not always in your control, and it's also n- for the benefit of the of the hospital's staff to do things in a certain way, um, because they want to go home. If you're a doctor or a nurse, you want to. A, a lot of times, you want to go home at the end of the day and say, "I did what I could." You know, that's why you want to go. You know, you know, want to say, "Oh, I saw this patient die, and he was there." You know, we just said, "That's not what you're there for." You know, that's not how you're trained. So if you want to die differently than the way a hospital death tends to happen, don't go, don't, don't die in the hospital. Um, I saw that with uh, a few times with uh, family members. Those who like refused to go back to the hospital did in fact die the way they wanted to, and those who didn't tend to have been hooked up to machines for a long time. Once and once you're in that situation, it's hard for for uh, families also to. So once you get to that point where you're, you know I'm going to decide to end the you know uh, that's not a burden I can I can take on myself so uh, you know, all those things go into the modern the modern discussion is uh, it's very different than what was going on uh, 50 60 years ago even. all right so thank you. <laughs> thank you.